as the children are leaving, would you pray with me? Our Father, this amazing hymn that we just heard reminds us of where we came from, where we are going to. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that we are free from guilt, free from sin. And Lord, as we look into the very words of your Son, Jesus Christ, this morning, I pray that it would be encouraging to our hearts. I pray that the truth of the gospel would would penetrate those who do not know you and would thrill the hearts of those who do because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. Lord, open our eyes, open our ears this morning. Help us to listen as if this is the last time we will hear the word of God before facing you. Help us to be listeners this morning that would be pleasing to you. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. In my old home state of Texas, at the University of Texas, there's a uh, Bible verse inscribed on the main building. It was carved in stone in 1935 using the King James Version of John 8.32, and it's etched, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That is, by one account, the most popular motto or slogan for universities, for learning institutions all over the country. Obviously, as an educational institution, the idea is that academic learning is the key to liberty. And it may be the key to liberty from financial destitution or from ignorance of a certain topic. I certainly, when I go to the doctor, I want him to be well-educated. I want him to have learned before he starts poking around on me and telling me what I'm going to be doing. But the University of Texas and every learning institution that uses that verse as their motto couldn't be more wrong about the actual meaning of that verse in its proper context. These are the words of Jesus Christ, and he is not extolling the virtues of higher education. He is not saying that the key to happiness is to make sure and get your master's degree. In fact, what Jesus is doing is condemning religious hypocrites who are slaves to their own sin. They're imprisoned by sin. They're dominated by their own sin nature that they've inherited from Adam. And so they do the things that are wicked because their hearts desire this. Not only are they slaves to sin, they're slaves who are condemned to the judgment of God because of their own self-deception. The Apostle Paul explains that all humanity is a slave to sin or a slave to something else. We're slaves to one of two things. Either you're a slave to sin as a condemned rebel against God or you're a slave to something else that Paul calls righteousness which is actually freedom and he says this multiple times in Romans chapter 6 he says in Romans 6 verse 17 but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed the very next verse having been set free from sin having become slaves of righteousness Verse 22 of the same chapter, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And so all humanity will be a slave to one thing or another, either to sin or to righteousness. That is our choice. There is a clear battle raging here that humanity is, for the most part, enslaved to sin that we do things we know are wrong, that we know violate God's righteousness. And somebody might say, well, I've never even read the Bible. How can I violate God's standards? Well, Romans chapter 1 says that the, God, the God's standards have been 
built into you. It's instinctive. You know that murder is wrong. You know that theft is wrong. You know that it's wrong to lie. You know these things. And therefore, because the law of God has been built into your heart by God himself, whenever we violate it, we do it on purpose. It's never an accident. We are always culpable. And so humanity is on a collision course with the rightful judgment of God. We're trapped in the slavery of the very sin that will condemn us to an eternity of God's fury and eternity of God's wrath. We're caught in the vortex, in the tornado of our own making. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as we're in this tornado, we can't escape. You can't say, Oh, I'm 200 feet off the ground in a tornado. I think I'll just walk away. That doesn't happen. And so we're caught in this. We're caught in the slavery to sin. So what do we do about this? Well, we've been examining the Gospel of John, chapters 8 and 9. Today we're in chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. And we've been observing that the great hymn writers of the past and the present, remember that a, a hymn is a musical expression of worship through theologically rich words. We've seen that the great hymn writers, they've taken these doctrinal truths and they've so beautifully, so splendidly laid out scriptural truth to song. And in John eight thirty-one through 36, we're going to see this clear theme of slavery to sin versus freedom from this slavery presented to us. And today's hymn, which Darren just sang for so beautifully, which helps us understand our text, it really nails down the story of the condemned slave to sin. In fact, it's a relatively new hymn just written in the last decade or so, free from guilt and free from sin. And the first verse, it leaves no wiggle room at all, no excuses, no defenses, no yeah buts, no but you don't understand, none of that. And it presents an airtight case against all slaves to sin in a logical, progressive manner. Verse 1 says, Dark the stain I cannot hide, stain of sin my guilt to prove, guilt my own and foolish pride, pride the reason for my sin, pride the reason for my sin. And one of the reasons I love this hymn is because of the logical nature of the words, and they're so packed with, with truth. Did you catch the Logic? Did you catch the flow? This is an open and shut case against the godless rebel, and it flows. Dark the stain I cannot hide. In other words, the evidence of my sin is my life, my messed up relationships, hurt people, selfishness, self-centeredness. The evidence of my sin is everywhere. The next line, stain of sin, which has is, which is now been proven, my guilt to prove. The evidence of my sin, which I can point to, only points to one person, me. I'm responsible. My guilt, it proves. And then the next line, guilt my own and foolish pride. So we go from the evidence to the, the proof that I'm the only one who's responsible. Guilt my own and foolish pride. Meaning, if I'm the singularly guilty party in my own sin, and I keep doing it, how prideful I must be pride the reason for my sin it's my pride that makes me sin it's my makes me worship myself makes me love myself vindicate myself justify myself and the author repeats pride the reason for my sin i'm enslaved by my own egocentric nature and love of me 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 above all else 
Now, these hymn writers nailed down in no uncertain terms the trap of slavery to sin. But the writer of this hymn also presents the solution. Wash me in the Savior's blood. Make me pure without within. Cleanse my heart and set me free. Free from guilt and free from sin. Free from guilt and free from sin. And the solution correctly is presented as Christ and Christ alone. And so in our text this morning in John eight thirty one through 36, we're going to see Jesus continuing a conversation with crowds in Jerusalem at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And we're going to just take a, a small piece of that conversation this morning. And so follow along with me as I read from John chapter 8, beginning in verse one, 31, rather, and we'll go through verse 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, this section that we're considering has three parts to it. It's a back-and-forth conversation. And so we could label these three parts of the conversation just to kind of give us a reference point here. So the first part, the first little section of this conversation, we might call the offer of liberation. The offer of liberation. Now, Jesus is speaking to the Jews. It says in verse 31, to the Jews who had believed him. And now, if you've been here for any period of time, or you've been in John 7 and John 8, you might be saying, oh, good, finally a friendly conversation with good guys. I mean, he's been in these arguments with people who hate his guts, who want to kill him, and it's nice to finally just sit back and be with some nice people. But you have to carefully qualify what the Apostle John means when he writes those who had believed him. Belief is the beginning point. It's the initial point of contact with Christ. In other words, to say they believed him, it means that they believe he's standing right here and that he's saying words. That's about it. In other words, there is a level of superficial faith, superficial interest, which is insufficient. Or if I could put it this way, not all faith is saving faith. Earlier in John, we saw that Jesus could omnisciently be an all-knowing. He could tell the difference between genuine, repentant, saving faith and superficial faith, which doesn't last. John 2, verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And you want to say, oh, great. But it goes on. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, he, they said, we believe, and he said, no, you don't. John chapter 6, Jesus has fed 5,000 men and their families miraculously, and then he preached the gospel to them. And what did they do after his preaching John 6, verse 60, when many of his disciples, those who were following him, heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Six verses later, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They didn't believe it wasn't real. 
So what about these here in verse 31, Jews who had believed? Well, we have to qualify this using the context. What comes after it? Who are them? Who are they? Well, just to be clear, verse 34 says, they're still slaves to sin. Verse 37, he says, you're the ones who are seeking to kill me. Verse 44, your father is the devil. Verse 45, they refuse to believe in him when he gives the truth of the gospel. Verse 47, he says, you are not of God. Verse 48 and verse 52, they told Jesus, you're a demon possessed. So when you read, those who believed in him don't think, oh, let's have a church picnic with them. They are not people friendly to the gospel. And so given the fact that it's possible to be at least, to initially at least believe in Jesus and yet be rejected by him, Jesus graciously makes an offer. He knows their heart. He knows that they're frauds. He knows that they're totally faking it. His offer is to tell these listeners how to be liberated from sin, how to become followers of Christ, who know that they're truly their followers, his followers. And so he says this, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, simply by reading that little text, we have just stepped on a theological landmine in John's gospel and for all the letters of John. That is the idea of abiding in Christ, abiding in the word of God, abiding in the word of Christ. Immediately in this offer of liberation from sin, Jesus gives a spiritual litmus test, a a test And instantaneously, he declares that a one-time verbal profession of faith in Jesus means nothing. The true litmus test is what happens over time. And so we've stepped on this theological landmine. We have to expand this just a little bit to understand what he's talking about. Abiding in Christ, abiding in his word. Sometimes in John's writing, the, the same word for abiding is translated remain. Same word in verse 35 in our text. Sometimes it's translated endure. This is the theological idea, sometimes called the perseverance of the saints. That yes, it is God who keeps our salvation secure, but from our standpoint, we have a responsibility. That responsibility is to demonstrate that our faith is valid, demonstrate that our faith is real, that we abide, we stay, we remain, we endure. Let me just give you a short tour of what John says, either quoting Christ in his gospel or expanding on his truths in the epistles of John. Later on in John's gospel, Jesus will give a command, an imperative in Greek, that we're to abide in him so that you can show that nothing good spiritually happens without him. He says in John 15, verse 4, abide in me. It's a command. It's imperative. It's if you're following me, this is what you must do. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Nothing good spiritually will happen without abiding in Christ. Well, Jesus goes on to explain the interconnectedness between what true believers in Christ and in Christ himself, how we're connected. And this goes far beyond just I agree or I assent to the knowledge that Jesus is who he says he is. It goes far beyond that. In the very next verse, in John 15, verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And you can already see the connection metaphorically here. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And here it is again, for apart from me, you can do nothing. You will not produce anything good. 
He continues to warn what will happen to those who acted like they believed in Christ but didn't abide with him, didn't stay the course, didn't go all the way to the end. The very next verse, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. But what does it mean to abide in my word like we see here in John eight thirty one? What does that mean? Well, Jesus explains in John 15, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That's it. If you keep my commandments, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. In other words, there is no such thing as a true believer in Jesus Christ who doesn't care to obey the Lord. That person does not exist who has no care for honoring Christ in all things. There is no category for that. And in John's first letter, his first epistle, he gives a very simple idea that the one who says he's following Christ logically should be acting more and more like Christ. He says in 1 John 2, verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. If I can put it in these terms, there is no such thing as somebody who says he's a Christian and doesn't look something like Christ. That person doesn't exist. In the same letter, John extols the spiritual strength of even very young believers, new believers, because they've demonstrated obedience and submission to the word of God. This evening, we're having the baptism service. Baptism has been set up by Jesus Christ as the very first test. Will you obey me? Will you do what I say? When somebody says, I want to be a Christian, but I won't be, I won't be baptized, then the church says, then you don't want to be a Christian. It's a very simple test. He says this to young believers in 1 John two fourteen. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. There's a sense of continuing. John even explains numerous times in his first letter that those who love Christ love each other. We have a yearning and a longing for one another. Those who do not abide with Christ will often drift away from the church or they'll be disfellowshipped from the church. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued. Same word for abiding with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. I've been in ministry a long time. And I would be a wealthy, wealthy man if I had a dollar for every time somebody came to church for a month and said, I am all in, and then I never see him again. That is more the rule than it is the exception. In fact, John says that true believers don't change their tune. The the gospel that they heard at the very beginning remains true, remains solid for them. They believe the gospel of Christ and this carries them all the way to the end. He says in 1 John 2, 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. In fact, John even warns that nominal Christians who are actually in fact unbelievers Their unbelief will eventually be exposed because when Christ gathers the true believers to himself, it will cause a separation. The church-going frauds will be left behind and in fact, they'll be ashamed, they'll be rejected. 1 John 2, 28, John warns, and now little children, abide in him, abide in Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. 
when Christ returns and takes the true church away, those who still show up on Sunday morning will be quite shocked that they're still here. Now, you might ask, you're using this word abiding. I don't think any of you have used that word one time this week, I'll bet. So you might ask, well, how do I know I'm abiding? How do I know this? Well, John gives the answer. 1 John 4, 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. What does that mean? Well, the apostle Paul, to borrow from him in Romans 8, verse 16, he says, the spirit bears himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, you know that you know that you know that you know. How do you know? Because the spirit of God is producing through you what Galatians 5 calls the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things are happening. You can step back objectively, look at your life and say, my life is different. It's changed. The Spirit of God is bearing witness with me that I am different. Therefore, I am a child of God. That's how the Spirit bears witness. John explains that for the true believer... The word of Christ, the teaching of Christ, the, the gospel of Christ just becomes more and more ingrained and precious and beautiful while the fraud thinks she knows better and moves beyond that truth, so to speak. Second John, the second letter of John, verse 9 says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. But whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If you start to think that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a little bit passe, a little bit old-fashioned, a little bit old-school, a little bit not for you anymore, then you never believed it to begin with. Now, do you think that the Holy Spirit meant for John to emphasize that only those who abide in Christ, abide in his word, are truly his? I think he meant that. Honestly, uh, biblical counseling could be a lot shorter if we really believed and grasped this I mean, I could plow through like 20 of you in an hour to say, stop lying, forgive each other, obey Ephesians 4 like there's no tomorrow, submit to those in authority over you, suffer like a good servant of Christ. If you love Christ and are abiding with him, do those things. If you don't, don't. Let's close in prayer. Next, that's really it. It really is. Here's your sin Here's what the Bible says about it. Do you want to obey and prove yourself a believer or you want to disobey and prove that you're a fraud? Which one? It's not hard. Jesus said that the one who abides in his word is truly his disciple. It's a Greek word that means a learner. One who desires to learn from him. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And so Jesus continues on here in our text. If you abide in my word, now there are consequent blessings that happen. That liberation from sin brings blessing after blessing and favor and goodness from God. The certain result of abiding in his word is that, verse 32, you will know the truth. You will know the truth. When our kids were little, I had the fun habit once in a while of walking through the living room in the dark and if they had left a few Legos there probably some of you guys have done that you step on one and that's a horrible pain which isn't as bad though as from jumping from that one to the next one and putting all your weight on it well we just did that again if you abide in my word theological landmine you will know the truth even bigger one we've just blown up another one here 
Why is this so important? Because the truth, understanding what this is, could be the difference between acceptance and, re- and rejection, blessing or judgment, heaven or hell. Understanding what the truth is can be the difference literally for eternity. Now, for the sake of time, let me just kind of quickly review the testimony of John the Apostle return, concerning what the truth is. John 1.14, Christ is full of truth. John 1.17, truth comes through Christ. John 4.23, only those with the truth can actually worship God. John 8.44, Satan is the father of lies and deceives. Why? He's going against the truth. John 8.45, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. John 14.17, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. John 17.17, 17, the, the word of truth, which is the Bible, is the truth. John 17, 17, same verse. The truth is the means by which you become like Christ. John 17, verse 38. Unbelievers can't find truth. Pilate asked, what is truth? They can't find it. 1 John 1, 6. If we say we are believers in Christ but willfully disobey, we lie and do not practice the truth. Same chapter, two verses later. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. 1 John 2, 4, the one who verbally professes faith in Christ says, I'm a Christian, but shows no lifestyle change, quote, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 2 John, verse 2, the truth of Christ abides in us and will be with us forever. In other words, you'll never be without the reality and the presence of the truth of Christ. 3 John 4, verse 4, living a life that's pleasing to the Lord is called walking in the truth. How closely is truth connected to Christ? How about this? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. It's not just truth is about Jesus. Jesus is the truth. The truth is Jesus. And so when Jesus said that if you abide in my word, you will know the truth, he's swinging a mighty theological sledgehammer. It means we know Christ who is full of truth, through whom truth comes. We can worship God rightly. We possess the spirit of truth. We possess and submit to the word of truth. Unlike the lost, we possess and understand the truth of the gospel. We possess the means to Christ-like living. Christ abides with us forever because he is the truth. And 2 John 2 says, abides in us and will be with us forever. It makes all the difference. And so we abide in his word in obedience, demonstrating that we're truly his disciples. And the result is that we know the truth in all facets. And what does Jesus say happens as a result? Verse 32, and the truth will set you free. It'll set you free. Judaism taught that studying the law of God made you free. John's gospel says that the word of God points to Jesus Christ, who is himself the truth and who alone imparts that freedom. And what's he offering? What is this liberation? Well, we could make sort of a list here. He's offering acquittal on all counts of your rebellion against God. Everything you've ever done that is this guilty, 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 he's offering acquittal. Romans 8 verses 1 and 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In other words, as Revelation 20 says, every one of you has a book 
or a series of books. It's a metaphor. It's probably not an actual book, but there is, there is a book, so to speak, with every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful deed being recorded. And I don't know if the angels are the ones writing in those books. I don't know how that works. But I do know this. Some of you, they can't write fast enough. And there's volumes and libraries. And Revelation 20 says that God will command, bring out the books. And you will stand right here before God and the books will be opened and your sins read. Do you know what Romans 8, 1, when it says there is therefore now no condemnation? It means that when the books are opened for you, the book with your name on it, the pages are blank. That there's nothing there. And then they bring another book called the book of life. And they go down the column, look, there you are. That's acquittal on all counts. What else do we get when you're offered this freedom? You get spiritual understanding. Spiritual understanding, John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You get acquittal on all counts. You get spiritual understanding. What else do you get? You get release from Satan's power. You're released from Satan's power. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What else do you get? You get to avoid the coming judgment of God on sinful humanity. You get to avoid the coming judgment of God on sinful humanity. John 5, verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. What else do you get? You get to avoid the eternal living death coming to sinful humanity. John 8, 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What else do you get when you're liberated? You get the final result of perfection and eternal life. We've already read this, but it's worth revisiting. Romans 8, or Romans 6, rather, 22, Now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, the whole point, eternal life. This is a pretty good deal. Acquittal on all counts, spiritual understanding, release from Satan's power, avoiding coming judgment, avoiding the coming eternal death. You get perfection, eternal life. But most importantly, and that's the crux of our passage here, you get freedom from sin and its eternal consequences. I've heard a lot of people say, I wish he would stop sinning. I haven't heard as many people say, I wish I could stop sinning to look in the mirror and say, can't I just go one day without violating God's standards? And you can't do it. But what an offer that he makes to these who are not true believers, but those who have pretended. What an offer. And what did they have to do? You ready for this? All they had to do was say, I accept. Sign me up. That's it. But the next part of this conversation shows what his listeners actually did. The first part is the offer of liberation. The second part, the rejection of the offer. The rejection of the offer. Verse 33, three terrible words. They answered him. What a mistake. How arrogant 
to answer the Son of God, who is God, very God, who is the creator of all things. You know what I wish the next phrase was? And they said, oh, thank you. How kind. I worship you. I bow to you. I give up all to follow you. What must I do to be your disciple? But no, verse 33, they answered him. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? This is a Greek grammatical construction called smart aleckness. They're pushing back. Now, the obvious contradiction here is to say, for them to say we've never been enslaved to anyone doesn't make any sense, considering the geopolitical history of Israel. Actually, basically, Israel was enslaved to every major empire in the history of the ancient Near East. They went from Egypt to Assyria to Babylon to Medo-Persia to Persia during the intertestamental period. They went to Greece, then to Syria, and finally to Rome. And put it this way, Israel was the ping-pong ball that, that various empires just kind of played with for a century or two. Hey, we've had Israel for a couple hundred years. Why don't you take them now? So it's probably not likely that these religious leaders are talking about political freedom. That's missing the whole point. That's too easy. What the Jews were talking about was spiritual freedom. In other words, that no amount of slavery, it doesn't matter whether we're in Egypt, whether we're in Babylon, whether we're in Persia, whether we're under Rome's oppression, it doesn't matter. No amount of slavery can take away the fact that we are God's chosen people. One group of influential Jews in Jesus' day called the Zealots, they believed that spiritual freedom was achieved through political freedom, but they were in the minority. Another group, the Pharisees, they taught that being God's holy people was the test of freedom, that as a Jew, as a physical descendant of Abraham, that was a guarantee of escaping the future fires of hell. That was freedom. It was your DNA. The famous Rabbi Akiva, who was born really during the ministry of the apostles around 50 AD, he's famous for saying that even the poorest of Israelites could be proud because they were sons of kings, meaning sons of the patriarchs going all the way back to Abraham. So for the Jews, their hope was not really in a political freedom, although that was an expected byproduct of a coming messianic kingdom. Their hope was simply that we're descendants of Abraham. We're in. We're good. We've got it. Our ticket has been punched. We'll be free now or we'll be free in the life to come. It doesn't really make any difference. And so based on this belief, the question Jesus asked, they asked Jesus, how is it that you can say you will become free? They believe they've always been free. So he reveals their true nature. He reveals that they're actually slaves. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And this is a double-edged sword. The practice of sin, the, the unashamed committing violations against God's standards over and over again without care, it proves that they're enslaved to sin, and the act of sinning actively enslaves them as well. Sin is addictive. Sin feels good. Sin is what we run to. They're enslaved to constant and consistent daily moral failure. They weren't slaves to Caesar or to Rome. They didn't care that much about that. They're slaves to their shameful selfishness, their devotion to personal pleasure. And let me give you an example that I gave you last fall. 
the Pharisees had figured out a way to reinterpret Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, the law concerning divorce. They figured out a way to reinterpret it so that not only could they look at other women sort of legally, and not only could they divorce their wives to go after other women, but they could actually say in their own twisted self-justification, by doing this, we're simply keeping the law of God and making God happy. That is twisted. And here's the irony. The irony is, is that these are men who were counting on their DNA, their ancestry, to guarantee that they're part of the coming kingdom. And just two weeks earlier, right before the start of the Feast of Booths, they had observed the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is a somber sad, serious day of fasting and sacrifice and acknowledgement of that I need to be forgiven from my sin. What was the Day of Atonement for them? Day of Atonement was a, it was a religious exercise. They said, test my blood. Abraham's my father. That's all I need. But they didn't need a birth certificate. They needed new birth. They needed a new birth to take the offer of freedom from sin being given to them, but they rejected his offer. So he's going to try again. First, we have the offer of liberation. Second, we have the rejection of the offer. And third, we have his second offer of liberation. His second offer of liberation. He's just condemned them as slaves to sin. And so he he switches over to the metaphor that they've used. And that is the metaphor of a spiritual family. He goes right with them and says, you want to go down that road? We'll do it. They've said, we are sons in the house of God because we're children of Abraham. And he says, no, you are slaves in the house of God. And then, guess what? Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. In other words, a slave for a time can enjoy the privileges of the entire household, the provision, the protection, even the prestige of the house The slave can say, I belong to this house because of my ancestry. The slave has no guarantees of a future, no guarantees in that household. He can be sold. He can be discarded at any time. And so the Jewish leaders, what are they doing? They're they're boasting about how they're part of the household of God because they're sons of Abraham, when in reality, they're still slaves. They're not part of the household just because of their DNA. As a matter of fact, if you were to pull in Abraham into this picture and say, what's your claim to fame? Because you're not actually a Jew. You're a Chaldean. And yet you're the first Jew. How does that work? You know what Abraham would say? He would say, I remember a day. It's a day recorded in Genesis 15, verse 6. I remember the day that I believed God and it was credited to me as righteousness that I was an unrighteous man and God credited me with his perfection, his holiness. And you tell Abraham, well, you're saved because your DNA said, no, I'm saved because God is gracious and he forgave me. He had the righteousness of God imputed. It means credited to him by faith. And I don't know if you caught this, but Jesus has just told these leaders a chilling truth. He said, you've been living it up in my father's house, acting like you're the sons. You are not the sons. You are the slaves. You're marching around acting like you belong and you don't. 
any day the door could be open and you're out. And he warns very clearly in Matthew 8, beginning in verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Those are the true believers. And listen to what happens to what he calls the sons of the kingdom. Well, the sons of the kingdom, oh, well, I must be a son of the kingdom. I'm a son of Abraham. I am, I am a part of Israel. I must be a son of the kingdom. Wow, what will happen with the sons of the kingdom? While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is like a great irony. I'm the son of a kingdom, and yet I'm thrown out. In other words, to those whom the kingdom of God was first offered to the Jews, they've rejected the offer and found that while they could have been sons, they remained as slaves and they will be cast out. How horrifying the cries of judgment must be when humanity realizes that God does not have an open-door policy. I listened to a sermon this week by somebody called God's Open-Door Policy, and I wanted to, to yell at my computer. I was listening to it. No, God doesn't have an open-door policy. There's not going to be a last minute when he looks at humanity and says, oh, you're all okay. Let's just all come in together. That's not going to happen. There will be a final moment. What, what will the shrieks and the screams of the countless millions B, as they're hurtling toward the lake of fire as described in Revelation 20. I'll tell you what it'll sound like. It'll sound like this. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? In other words, weren't we religious? Weren't we the ones with the right DNA? And then they'll never be heard from again. Certainly the Jewish leaders did many, many religious things, but one thing that they lacked, they were still slaves. They actually had the wrong DNA. So what is a slave to sin to do? Well, in verse 35, Jesus continues, in contrast to the slave who does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. The son of God is a permanent part of the household, so what would a reasonably intelligent slave do? Hmm, I need to become friends with the son. The slave will appeal to the son. The slave will admit he's a slave instead of arrogantly marching around through the house saying, I'm a son, I'm a son, I'm a son. The real son will open the door and say, no, you're not, goodbye. And what will the son do for the slave who asks for mercy? Verse 36, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. By the way, there's a clear parallel here. Did you catch it? Verse 32, the truth will set you free. Verse 36, the son will set you free. Meaning to know the truth, to be set free from the bondage and guilt and condemnation of sin, you must know the son. It's that simple. And then he said, he'll set you free indeed. It's a word that means really free, actually free, not the fake false freedom that you think you have. And then you will know the truth. Know is a, a Greek verb that means not just to objectively know about something. It's a word that means knowing him for yourself. It's personal. It's about me and him. It's a deep, intimate, personal relationship. And so the repentant slave to sin goes to the son and he says I'm a slave to sin 
I know I'm not part of your father's household. I know I don't belong. I know I'm on the way out. Could you find it in your heart to give favor to me? Could you find a way for me to stay? You know what Jesus says? He says, I will always say yes. I will always say yes to that. And it was the death of Christ on the cross that canceled your debt of sin and made it possible for him to say yes. For you to be as holy as the Son of God himself and thereby spiritually adoptable. In fact, I want to drive this point home with a different text. Can you turn over with me to Romans chapter 8? Romans 8, very familiar text to you. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul has outlined the glories of what the repentant in Christ receive, all the good things that we get. And then in verses 15 through 17, he gives a progression. Let's see if you can catch it. Romans 8, beginning in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Did you catch the progression? You went from slaves to being adoption candidates to being adopted children. And since we're children of God, now that makes us heirs of God and all the goodness that he wants to give. And if Christ is an heir of God, that makes us heirs of God with Christ. You just went from slave to son. Did you catch that? In fact, the Bible says that Jesus died on the cross that he might bring many sons to glory, many daughters to glory. But there is a condition. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, or to put it in Jesus' own words, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He's already proven that a one-time verbal confession of faith is useless. It means nothing. Here's what Jesus said we do. In Mark 8, 34, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. How long? All the way. All the way. The first verse of free from guilt and free from sin is actually a wonderful model confession This is the prayer of the slave to sin. This is a glorious prayer. Dark the stain I cannot hide. Stain of sin my guilt to prove. Guilt my own and foolish pride. Pride the reason for my sin. Pride the reason for my sin. But Jesus gives the pathway to freedom. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth. You will know the son. The truth and the son will set you free and you will be free indeed. Can I say this? Can I say that there is room for you at the foot of the cross? If you are already at the cross and you know Jesus Christ, glory in the fact that he's bringing many, many more. There's a place for you in the household of God. There are adoption papers waiting for you to sign on the dotted line and say, I accept. I don't want to be a slave. I want to be a son. I want to be a daughter. There's enough truth to set you free. There's enough of the Son of God to set you free that the forgiveness that's offered is available just if you ask. That's all the the Lord asks is just to ask and heaven awaits 
but so does hell. And every person in this room is going to end up for all of eternity in one of those places. I shared this with somebody the other day and he said, I don't believe you. And I said, that's not the issue. Let me correct you. And I said, you don't believe me now, but you will. And when you believe, it'll be too late. Take the offer of Christ. Confess to him. Dark the stain I cannot hide. Stain of sin, my guilt approve. Guilt my own and foolish pride. Pride the reason for my sin. You have lied. You have cheated. You have stolen. You have taken from God. You have been drinking his water. You have been eating his food, breathing his air, walking on his earth, enjoying his people, taking and taking and taking. And at some point... God will require your life of you. You will not get away with it. The books will be opened. And my prayer is, is that when the book with your name is opened, it'll be blank. And then Jesus Christ, our advocate, our intercessor, will say, he's mine. Credit him with my life. Pay for him with my death. Our Father, the... The sin of stain, the stain of sin is, is so wretched. Every person here who thinks they are hiding, every person here who thinks that they will get away with something, oh, how horrible that day will be, the day when it is too late, the day when the books and the volumes, the libraries are opened. Entry number one, when you were two, you lied to your mother. Entry number two, you lied about lying. And throughout the course of 60, 70, 80, or 90 years, the pages will turn and turn and turn, revealing nothing but guilty wickedness. Lord, if it were not for the precious, kind offer of Christ, we would all remain slaves to sin for all time. But through his blood, through his work on the cross, he has offered to free us, to, to unshackle us, and to change our destinies forever. It is my prayer, Lord, that every person here who already knows Christ would revel and celebrate, would sing hallelujah to the cross, hallelujah for Christ. And that if anyone here does not know Christ, Lord, you have made no guarantees. That person might walk out of here and have 10 more minutes to live. And so I pray this would be the day that your spirit would move and that that person, that man, that woman would bow the knee to Christ and say, please, please adopt me. Please make me a child of God. Please forgive my sin. Jesus has promised that he will cast no one out who makes that request. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your kindness. It is in the name of Jesus we pray.